Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab my mic because I like to take it to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground We bring the truth to no place No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to a public affair I am Esti Dinur And before we get to our show today Which I am very excited about I just want you to know That this Saturday at 5pm You can join the Walk to Justice In um, uh, James Madison Park to uh, pray, listen to speakers, and to a spiritual and, and to traditional song from the Savage Nation drum group and musical performances by Larry Long. The Walk for Justice is a spiritual and prayerful walk for the freedom of Leonard Paltier. It is an 1103-mile walk from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Washington, D.C., hosted by the American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council to ask for justice by releasing Leonard Paltier, the longest indigenous political prisoner held by the United States government. Welcome our traditional dancers, singers, and all to come and uh, join this event at uh, 5 p.m. tomorrow at James Madison Park. Of course, if you have listened to this show for many years, you have heard several discussions about Leonard Paltier and other political prisoners and um, other victims of... um, American Indian movement victims of the uh, American government. Well... We are going to talk about um, other struggles for uh, human rights and independence today. Um, our topic is the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II in uh, many, many different places that used to be the uh, British Empire. With us is Elizabeth Kolsky. She's Associate Professor of History at uh, Villanova University and author of Colonial Justice in British India, White Violence and the Rule of Law. And uh, hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Esti. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Yeah, I really appreciate that you have. And I want to tell you that um, one of our previous um, uh, guests um, let me know that the major TV network canceled an important discussion of... um, I was asked not to talk about exactly what, but a major current crisis because they dedicated the entire day to um, the Queen's death. And uh, I think you know probably better than me that most of that coverage was very complimentary. Um, For example, President Biden um, said that she... She uh, represented unprecedented human advancement and the forward march of human dignity. Um, There's a lot we haven't heard, isn't there? I I think so. First of all, I think, um, who is the we, right? I mean, I think there's a lot we haven't heard, perhaps those of us educated in the global north, but those of us educated and living in the global south, have heard. They and know. They heard. They continue to live. You know the consequences of this history. But I, I do get your, your. I do get your point. Yeah. So, um, she really was the monarch, the ruler of the British Empire, which lasted well into her lifetime. I uh, just learned from you that um, the last 
to uh, be released from British colonialism was Hong Kong in 1992. I, of course, was thinking about Zimbabwe, which was, before its independence, was Rhodesia, which um, gained independence in 1980 as the last of many African colonies and Asian colonies and uh, Middle East colonies. Um, she was an active participant in uh, the British Empire and in colonialism, wasn't she? Yes, of course. She's the, you know, the entire empire. The people who lived in the empire were referred to as Her Majesty's subjects. So she lorded over a global empire. And even though some have claimed that Constitutionally, she did not have authority to make policy decisions in the empire. Others have pointed out that her family, her own portfolio was uh, positively impacted by the looting of the colonies. Even those parts of her, um, even those, you know, the, the, her, her, her crown, for example, you know, the, the symbol of, of, monarchical power at the center of this crown sits a stolen diamond from India referred to as the Kohinoor. So there's a, a tension between these claims that she is a ceremonial figurehead who did not make policy decisions on the one hand and on the other hand, um, you know, this, the, the clear fact that she, she personally, not to mention Brit, Britain, you know, Britain as a nation benefited from this massive global empire that, as you point out, um, she ruled over for, you know, arguably, you know, almost half a century. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, first of all, uh, Richelle is correcting me that Hong Kong was 1997? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> my mistake, thank you, both of you. Um, she she also, Queen Elizabeth, um, actively tried to stop independence movements and to keep newly independent colonies from leaving the Commonwealth. Tell us about that. Well, ooh, where do I start? Right, As a historian, <laughs> we always have to find starting points. So let me just start here. Some would, I think it would be probably not a much argued point that her reign is coterminous with the end of the British Empire, an empire that that clung on to power, um, quite um, what would be the word strongly. So many, you know, many people would say that the first major colony to gain freedom was India in 1947, the same year that India became free, that India won freedom in August uh, on August 15, 1947. During that same year. Queen Elizabeth was famously in South Africa, and she spoke about her lifelong dedication and service and vision of serving um, the great imperial family, as she put it, which was the empire. So the idea of, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the great imperial family of the Commonwealth. Excuse me, mm -hmm. I, I also have not misspoken. So now we're tied. So um, this for many people, when we listen to this language of a great imperial family called the Commonwealth, we hear and we sense these uncomfortable ties to empire. The metaphors about families were always part of how the empire imagined itself. Throughout the 19th century, you frequently heard colonial administrators talking about those in the colony as children, right? They're, they're, her, they're her majesty's subjects, as I mentioned, but they're also children. They haven't yet been developed and grown up to be at a kind of level of, of British subjects. So the language of family always justified hierarchical bonds of empire with Britain serving as parents and, and colonized people sort of functioning as undeveloped, underdeveloped children who needed to be raised up. So for me, the minute I hear her in 1947 talking about service to this great imperial family of the Commonwealth, Again, not only are there past resonances to this language of family, but there's there's now current you know resonances where who who occupy who is at the head of this so-called family? Well, of course, it's still the queen. Um, and you know we saw you know in many it's you know this isn't to say that people in colonized countries did, did not and do not still support membership in the in the Commonwealth, 
But I think for many, sort of the ongoing relationship to the mother country in the form of the Commonwealth in colonized countries is a subject of um, sort of debate, one that brings up the question of is the past really over or is the past really present in this form of this so-called great imperial family called the Commonwealth. Yeah, and I want to get back to it, but um, to stick with the former question, maybe we can talk about Kenya and the Mau Mau uprising and the role of Queen Elizabeth in um, the repression. So I think a lot of people in the United States don't even know about that. So tell us, give us a premiere about what happened in Kenya during these years. I would be happy to. Um, so the story in Kenya begins in the late 19th century when initially the British send a company called the British East African Company to begin to explore the possibility of colonizing what was then referred to as East Africa. There was no such place at the time called Kenya. Maybe American audience might have heard of the so-called scramble for Africa that was going on during this period. So in the late 19th century, this is when European powers were dividing the African continent among themselves, evidencing what some people have called cooperation among European powers rather than competition. We tend to think of, or we tend to thought about think about European empires as always in competition. But this so-called scramble for Africa, as scholars have pointed out, suggests that there was collaboration between them. So I'm just going to kind of move, move forward. So Kenya early on becomes what we call a white settler colony, a place where many British people imagined a, a sort of better life and future for themselves. And in Britain, uh, people were actively sold this vision of this better life. Now, what did this better life look like? It looked like a society defined by racial hierarchy, white on top, black on bottom, in which one could own land and gain wealth without, without having to work the land. So the society is built on um, the economic system of white settlement, which means that land is given on preferential terms to white settlers from Europe. And on this land work indigenous people who have no legal legal claims to the land. So in, by 19, and my, I hope I'm not, and I am a historian, so I never know, am I, am I getting too, too detailed into the, into the facts? Oh, no, 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 go ahead. Okay. So, you know, in the early period, East Africa is what the British call a sphere of influence. It's, it's kind of controlled by these corporate interests, but doesn't have this direct political link to the crown. By 1920, Kenya becomes a crown colony. And by the time Kenya becomes a crown colony in 1920, um, the colonial government has already explicitly, you know, set itself in favor of white settlement, setting aside, pref you know, the best and most fertile lands only for settlement by, by European white settlers. Um, and so you have in Kenya from the early 20th century, these kind of this white settlers, a colonial government that reports to Britain, and then, of course, indigenous people who, you know, who are finding themselves dispossessed of land and being turned from people who, since time immemorial, have owned and worked land, now working for these, for these white settlers. And so beginning in the 1920s and 30s, you're finding, this is especially after World War I, which famously was this war that was meant to make the world safer for democracy, after World War I, when the British Empire not only doesn't disintegrate, but expands, you find an uptick of anti-colonial movements around the world, in Asia, in Africa, and elsewhere. And this includes in Kenya, where in the 1920s and 30s, you find people organizing in different ways against this project of, of colonization. There were so-called moderate attempts, right? Moderate attempts are associated with the efforts to reform colonial administrations, give us more power in local government, give us, you know, these sort of reforms of, of, of a colonial administration. And then you found what some call more militant efforts, right? Efforts that say the use of violence is justified in overthrowing British power. It's not till both both of these efforts in Kenya, by the way, are not successful in either reforming or removing British authority from Kenya. So it's not till after World War II and beginning in the 1950s that you have um, 
a successful revolutionary movement against British power. And that movement is known as Mau Mau. Now, what does this have to do with Queen Elizabeth? It's, it's a very, there's a very famous image and fairy tale story about Queen Elizabeth being at the top of a treetop lodge, you know, on the outskirts of Nairobi, Kenya, when she hears news of her father's death, news which effectively made her queen. Um, and so symbolically, Queen Elizabeth, queen El Princess Elizabeth becomes queen in the space of empire in Kenya. Now, a few months after she becomes queen, this Mau Mau movement, this movement for land and freedom that I referred to earlier, uh, begins a, to uh, begins to a series of targeted assassinations of both white settlers and also African leaders, appointed African leaders who served colonial interests. And in response to this Mau Mau movement for land and freedom, the British colonial administration in Kenya um, declares a state of emergency. Now, of course, in a state of emergency, all rights are suspended. Freedom of movement is suspended. Freedom of, of uh, expression is, and any any rights or freedoms that anybody has are, are suspended. And this, this state of emergency lasts for eight years. And within the past 15, 20 years, there's been tremendous historical scholarship that has revealed the truth of what happened in Kenya from 1952 until 1916 and until 1960 and what happened to revolutionary movements elsewhere in the empire. So shall I keep going? Esther? Yeah, tell us, tell us what the findings were and um, help us understand the brutality of uh, British colonialism. Uh, we think of them as white, polite people with nice accents. <laughs> <laughs> and the Queen, of course, on top there, being also very polite and, and very cultured and all that. What, what did they do to the local people? Okay, so the Mama Movement for Land and Freedom is a revolutionary guerrilla movement. It's a movement... Um, that does not announce itself, but it's a movement that embraces guerrilla tactics. So the Mau Mau, whose goal is to reclaim land and to expel the colonial administration, they raid army barracks, they raid police stations, they steal guns, and they pose, understandably, as they have already announced they are doing, a threat to the very existence of the colonial system. Right? Their goal is the removal of colonialism from Kenya. Now, the white settlers' goal, of course, is the continued occupation of Kenya and profit from same. So how do you, as a colonial administration, deal with a movement that seeks your annihilation? Well, in the case of the British in Kenya, the way they effectively do that, as has been uncovered by historians such as Carolyn Elkins and David Anderson, is they round up virtually the entire population and pass them through a pipe, what's called the pipeline, a kind of a, a sprawling network of detention camps that are designed to both smoke out who is Mau Mau versus who is just a random person on the street and also rehabilitate the entire population who in the 1950s, British psychologists had sort of... Um, pathologized as having been as fallen to this mass psychosis known as Mau Mau. So rather than seeing this Mau Mau movement for land and freedom as a legitimate political challenge to colonialism, colonial administrators supported by these sort of psychological theories saw Mau Mau as being proof of the inherent backwardness of this population, which had not yet, going back to that metaphor of family that we used before, had not grown up to be fully grown adults. So uh, hundreds of thousands of people are rounded up and detained. Um, these detention camps are places where people are held without due process, with no trial or trials that are held in secret, trials in which people did not have access to attorneys. Um, people were tortured in the most brutal and unimaginable ways. 
involving various kinds of sexual assault and humiliation, rape, the use of different instruments to, you know, thrust up different body parts. I don't know what we can say on community radio. You can say that, absolutely, yeah. Um, and when the British, you know, Carolyn Elkins, who's one of these, one of the very important historians who's written about this, encountered a lot of not only um, skepticism about the truth of this story, right? As you're saying, Esti, we tend to think of the British as being uh, civilized, having nice accents, Hugh Grant, this type of stuff. But also um, when she went to do the research, she, she wasn't really finding documents that were verifying many of the stories that she had heard. And so she begins her research, you know, embracing oral historical methods, going to interview people, because this is in, I think she's doing her research in the 1990s. So many of the people who had experienced torture at the hands of the British were still alive. And uh, she writes a book called Imperial Reckoning that is received with mixed reviews. Some historians included say, eh, your methods are really maybe not so believable. You've interviewed some people and you're making these broad quantitative claims about X number of people being, you know, interned and we're not sure that we can believe you. And they're just and these black people who are still childlike, I'm sure is kind of a uh, implicit um, um, idea there. Yeah, so the, this, the book is challenging, right? Because again, we got this is the 1950s, right? This is post-war. This is post-Nazi Holocaust. Are you telling us that the British, these uh, sort of global symbols of civility, are interning people in virtual concentration camps with barbed wire, denying them access to attorneys and, and physically, psychologically torturing them? Like this, this, this is truly a, a scandal, if true. So, of course, it was true in the 2009 um, survivors of Mau Mau, uh, sur you know, Mau Mau survivors of torture filed a class action lawsuit against the British government um, claiming ill treatment. And as evidence, they used the historical scholarship produced by Carolyn Elkins and, and others. And in the process of sort of the discovery of evidence, what comes out is that the British beginning in the 1950s, had implemented an explicit policy called Operation Legacy, which was designed to shape the future legacy of empire, right? So when you're saying we sitting here in 2022 still think of the British as being civilized, this is no accident. This is partially a consequence of Operation Legacy. So what did those who who implement an Operation Legacy do? Well, they burned historical records in large measure, literally burned them. There's a famous uh, article that came out about this a few years ago in the Journal of Imperial um, and Commonwealth History. And, you know, the article starts out with, you know, quoting a British officer who says, what's burnt won't be missed, right? So let's better to just burn everything. We won't miss it than to, than to preserve. And so both massive amounts of documents are burnt, right? This was certainly true in Kenya and elsewhere. And then other documents were boxed up and sent back home to Britain where they were hidden literally in this massive archive, which is discovered as part of this lawsuit. So this lawsuit, so... So this is literally a secret history. This is a history that the British state has sought to repress. Mm -hmm. And um, you actually write in one of your articles that um, um, in a June 1957 memo drafted by the Attorney General of the Kenyan Colonial Administration likened the mistreatment of suspected detainees, a British, to conditions in Nazi Germany, still he advised the governor of Kenya, if we are going to sin, we must sin quietly. And and that's what they did. 
Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm interested in the Mau Mau movement because I remember somehow I remember that as a child, um, I read an article about the Mau Mau that described them as these devils, and and I remember the word, who suddenly appear at night and uh, cause all these horrible things to the nice British. And what occurred to me as I was thinking about it, because I've been thinking about it recently quite a bit, of course, is that um, I was raised in Israel, which was also under a British mandate. And uh, before it was Israel, there were definitely uh, Jewish people who fought against the British. And um, to to think that um, even then, which... I was a kid, you know, just, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, um, that, that the Hebrew, Hebrew journalism, Israeli journalism, was supportive of the British and not of other people who were under British rule. So um, I just, I thought that was so interesting. And I don't know if you want to comment, but I want to ask you also about uh, India. Again, you have an article that starts with George Floyd and um, how at first... Um, the authorities explained to us that it was his uh, fault and the cops were good and <laughs> so on and so forth. And uh, it reminded you of uh, British rule in India and, and the tremendous brutality that was going on there and how it was justified through both science and the law. So, yeah, if you want to comment about what I said earlier, you're welcome to, but Let's talk about India also. Well, I guess there's two. There's, your first comment has me thinking about two things. The first is the persuasiveness of ideologies of empire. I'm reminded of Edward Said, who's one of the great, a Palestinian, of course, and also just one of the great post-colonial thinkers of the 20th century. He writes a book in 1978 called Orientalism, and Orientalism really focuses on the notion that empire isn't only a political and economic system, it's also a cultural system. It's comprised of and supported by ideas, systems of ideas about the otherness of colonized people that require and justify dominating them. I brought you know, up the if, if I might add to what he said, um, I think it's also a psychological thing. It uh, colonizes the brain of yes. both the colonizers and the colonized. 100%. So, so part of me was thinking, there's a wonderful interview with him, which you can find on YouTube. It's called Edward Said on Orientalism, where he's being interviewed about the book. And one of the things he mentions is growing up as a child, and watching Hollywood depictions of Arabs, he himself is Arab, and watching movies like um, Alad uh, um, Arabian Nights, for example. And he talks about, yeah, he was just totally delighting in these fantastical racist portrayals of Arabs without making the connection of, wait a minute, they're talking me. about me, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, I think about that on the one and the other. On the other hand, what I think about when you mention that is, Questions about nationalism and internationalism. So, for example, and, and, and by this I mean in the 1920s and 30s and even into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we've tended to focus a lot on anti-colonial nationalist movements. For example, the Mau Mau is a movement for land and freedom in Kenya. Okay, Or if we take the case of India and we think of the Indian National Congress, the party led by Mahatma Gandhi, it was, a it was a movement geared towards freedom of India from the British Empire. But at the same time that these anti-colonial nationalist movements are operating, there's also various internationalist movements that are operating that are an, an inter internationalist intellectuals who are saying, well, empire is a global system and we have common cause, right? Whether we live in Mandate Palestine or whether we live in Kenya or whether we live in India, 
we are all being enslaved by this British empire. We all have common cause. So it's interesting. So these are the two things I think about when you mentioned that um, being a child. And I wonder, you know, to what extent did nationalism blinker the imagination of some to, um, to think of themselves in solidarity with global people, right? So that you could be convinced by this racist portrayal of Kenyans um, in a way that you would never be convinced of racist portrayals of Jews, of which there are many. Right. And and I'm also, as you say that, I'm also thinking, of course, Israel was very busy then as it is now uh, oppressing Palestinians. So yes. um, there's, I'm sure, a connection there. Let me just uh, quickly reintroduce you. My guest is Elizabeth Kolsky, Associate Professor of History at Villanova University and author of Colonial Justice in British India, White Violence and the Rule of Law. And of course, we are talking about the uh, legacy of Queen Elizabeth II, who um, has received tremendous um, supportive <laughs> coverage, and it seems like the whole world is uh, mourning for her, at least if you depend on uh, Western uh, media. Um, and so, yeah, you're welcome to call if you have questions that are relevant and you haven't called in the past seven days, 608-256-2001. You can join us on social media, at Word Talk, on Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. So let's talk about India, Elizabeth. Sure. So you bring, so, um, you, you, you know, you began by saying when George Floyd died, the the autopsy report was questionable to to say the least and we saw you know discussions of well he had covid he had drugs in his body and there were sort of unofficial and we could i'm not going to say official so i'll just stick it unofficial efforts to make it appear as though he was responsible for his own death and either my first book which you introduced which is called colonial justice in british india found similar things happening in India in the 19th century. The use of science and scientific evidence to support various kinds of claims that Indian people were responsible for their own deaths when murdered by white Europeans. So my book, you know, we started out talking about Queen Elizabeth and about the Mau Mau and about state violence parallel to this story of state violence, and by state violence, I mean violence committed by state actors, there's also a, another level of violent history with which we are perhaps even less familiar, which is the violence committed by non-state actors. And that's what my book, which is justified, which, you know, the state plays a role, but my book about India focuses on what I call ordinary violence, everyday forms of violence that white Europeans, both those who worked for the colonial state and those who did not, violence commit against Indian people that usually um, there was no punishment for. So there are these two levels. There are these sort of grand, large, huge movements that, you know, the repression of Mau Mau. And then there are these smaller everyday moments of violence um, and a violence that even though, and the reason I say there's connections between state and non-state is that at least in the case of India, what I found is that um, white Europeans could literally get away with murder. And the way they got away with murder was both the outcome of uh, special legal exceptions. For example, they could only be tried by a jury of Europeans rather than a mixed jury. Um, it also was supported by these scientific ideas that I mentioned before about the weakness and inferiority of Indian bodies. So there was this famous, um, what was called the spleen defense, where a person, oftentimes a worker on a tea plantation, on tea plantations, British planters served as like judge, jury, and executioners. They, they would, they would they had just, they literally had uh, criminal authority to enforce contracts, meaning people who worked on the tea plantations 
if they wanted to walk off the job, walking off the job was a criminal rather than a civil offense, right? It wasn't normally a contract as a civil matter, but in this case on the plantations of British India, the contract was a penal contract, meaning if you walked off the job, you could be criminally punished. And who was going to criminally punish you? The planter who owned the plantation that you're walking off the job from. So there was tremendous brutality on these tea plantations in India. It's very reminiscent to me of the plantations here in the United States when slavery was still legal. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. In, I mean, in the, in the case of the United States, yeah. I mean, the, the difference is that in the United States, you had chattel slavery, which didn't even recognize the personhood of the enslaved. So um, in India, you don't have quite chattel slavery, but effectively, I mean, the question of the letter of the law and the practice of the law are two different things. Maybe in the letter of the law, the, tea, the plantation worker is a person, but in practice, if he or she can't leave the plantation, can't make a criminal complaint, and can be locked up in what were called lockboxes, which is literally what they were called. These were places where Indian tea workers would be locked up and abused and punished as it was as it was called out for 24 hours by the planter often leading to their deaths really does question whether their personhood was um effectively recognized but to the point about science so let's so what oftentimes happened so not only do these europeans have legal privileges such as european only jury but they also have other kinds of practical privileges for example the planters would fraternize and socialize with the chief of police and the medical examiner, and they would be known to them. And then, you know, as many people who have studied the history of science and empire have shown, scientists are people of their times, right? Scientists are impacted and doctors by contemporary cultural and social prejudices. And so many of these doctors in India would not only write in their textbooks about the otherness of Indian bodies, but when they gave testimony, they would, you know, say, well, I, I understand that there's evidence been presented that this person was locked up in the lockbox and physically abused by, for 24 hours. But we know that Indians have certain natural tendencies, for example, Today. for having weak spleens, right? And this is this was the George Floyd, right? It's 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 something about his own body that caused his own death, not being asphyxiated for almost nine minutes by a man standing over him with his neck in a, in a, you know, in, you know, in, in, in lock in you know, with his neck, you know, what do you call this? Arm yeah. Lock. I, yeah. Yeah. So there are, so there's a lot of parallels. So I was just trying to draw parallels around the ways in which racial systems and the system of government in India is a system of white supremacy makes possible the killing of people with impunity mm -hmm. and that scientists and doctors who are part of the system. So, you know, and, you know, in a system in which scientific evidence is seen as the highest form of evidence, right? When the doctor comes and says the man didn't die from being abused, he died from having an enlarged spleen. This becomes very convincing evidence in a modern court of law. Mm -hmm. And and again, thinking about the way we are told the story, I've been thinking about Gandhi, right? Mm -hmm. We all admire Gandhi, but how many of us think of him in the context of the British Empire, right? That he was actually the head of a rebellion against British brutality. Mm, that's a really great point, the kind of... I, th I thought you were going to go in another direction because there's a lot of revisionist thinking about Gandhi. There's a lot of critical yeah. thinking about his role in Africa, his yeah. his racism, his refusal to speak out and advocate on behalf of African communities. I thought you were going to go there. There's that conversation. But also, I think the point you're saying is when we lionize Gandhi, we think about this ethereal figure floating on the clouds with these big glasses that, that no much, context. <laughs> yeah, but I, th I think that I think we can connect sort of the theme for today with this Gandhi figure, right? Much as Queen Elizabeth seen as this cute little old lady with handbags, and you know, this figure of the queen allows us focusing on her allows us not to think about 
the ugly, ugliness of her majesty of what was done to her majesty's subjects. Similarly, I think you're saying thinking about Gandhi, this ethereal figure distracts us from thinking about more deeply, what is the movement he is leading? What is the critique? What's the history? Yeah. And, and who, who were they rebelling against? You know, it's something that is just never doesn't seem there's no connection, you know, so that's very strange. But we are getting, um, well, you know, the conversation is so good. We're getting close to the end of the hour. So I wanted to get back to that issue of uh, lingering legacies of the British Empire. For example, um, apartheid era practices and the way um, these still exist to a large degree in um, South Africa and or the poorly drawn borders which continue causing conflicts and uh, war in the Middle East, in Nigeria and of course there's plenty more things that you can talk about but let's let's start with these. I mean, we can talk about, you know, many people have talked about, right, that, you know, it's very famously William Faulkner who said the past, I'm going to misquote, but something to the extent of it, it's one of my favorite quotes, and I should be able to recite it properly. And I love Faulkner, but go ahead. He said something like the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. The idea being that the past is always present with us, which we can read many ways. One way we can think about it is the way historians today view and write about the past through the lens of the present. And we can also think about the past shapes the present, right? So on the one, you know, so you're pointing out the past, you know, to the extent that you have ongoing political conflict between India and Pakistan, which were partitioned on October 14th, 1947. It's a direct legacy of British colonialism. You know, many people have talked about these, the political and economic legacies of empire. But, you know, one, another thing, you know, and, and some have talked about this in terms of COVID, for example, the idea of um, the unequal distribution of power worldwide has exacerbated the unequal distribution of vaccines and the unequal suffering from something like COVID-19. But there's also a lot of recent work on climate change as a current crisis defined by a colonial past. I know you- I I would love for you to talk about that, please. Yeah. So um, we all know that climate change is not a future problem, it's a present problem. Now me sitting here in Philadelphia, it's perhaps a bit easier today on September 16th for me to think about it as a future problem. Last year when my city was underwater, Perhaps we had a moment where we thought, oh, this isn't a future problem, it's a present problem. But many people living in the global north have the luxury of thinking about climate change as a future problem. Now, at the same time, people in the global south and people who live on islands and people who live closer to um, equi- you know, closer to the equator are currently and presently experiencing the effects of what we tend to frame as a future climate crisis. This comes in the form of uh, extreme temperature, the, uh, which we've had all summer. I don't know what it's like in, in Madison, Wisconsin, but here in Philadelphia, we've been in the nine, we were in the nineties the, the entire summer. So people we've in had the global- fall the entire summer pretty much. Have you? Pretty much. Yeah. Other than a short heat wave. So that, that, that yeah, we were under underwater a few years back. Got it. Well, we have um, Pakistan is underwater today. I don't know uh, if your listeners or I don't know if you've had much conversation about climate change, but oh, all the time, yeah, for many okay, years. Seen, okay, so we we so we see Pakistan literally, you know, one third of in, Pakistan is underwater today. It's yes, it's, the crisis in Pakistan is being completely eclipsed by the focus on the queen. And to those readers who don't know, and I'm assuming many of your, your readers are uneducated readers, Pakistan was part of, part of British India until 1947. So when we want to, when we're talking about the history of India, you know, we're also talking about the history of Pakistan to the extent that Pakistan was part of the British Empire until it was partitioned. So Pakistan is underwater today, 
And the reason why Pakistan, one of the reasons that why Pakistan is underwater today is not only due to climate change, and we, but it's also um, when we dig a little deeper and we ask ourselves, well, so Pakistan is suffering from the, currently suffering from the effects of climate change, a problem to which it has contributed very little. In fact, most of those parts of the world that are suffering from the current effects of climate change have offered, have contributed very little to the problem of climate change. Now, many, um, you know, in recent years, scholars and geologists have begun to talk about this idea of the Anthropocene. Have you talked about the, which oh, is yeah. another idea that I find shockingly ordinary people. I've never heard of this concept of the Anthropocene. Have you had shows about it? I want to oh, bore yeah, you. Oh, yeah, 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 plenty. I started talking about um, uh, global climate change in 1996 and never stopped since. So, yeah, I want to, um, Elizabeth, if we can go get back to it, but we do have a caller who um, wants to play devil's advocate. So let's yeah. hear what he has to say. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead, Stevie, on the air. Yes, uh, SDN Liz. I wish to make a point distinctly out of order with my own socio-political milieu. As a historian, I am well aware of Britain's central historic role in exploitative settler colonialism. And my thesis, uh, furthermore, is that it was Britain, and could only be Britain, that initiated two world wars. However, in today's environment of societal disintegration and the average individual's ignorance of history, I suggest there is some value in the continuation of the monarchy as a reminder stimulus for discussions such as this one. Similarly, a Confederate statue does not hurt me, but is a valuable teaching tool. Thank you. Okay. Elizabeth. Um, okay, so the question of the, 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 the queen is a reminder of a colonial past that we don't want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I Steve is gone, but um, I mean... To me, it's a pretty uh, specious <laughs> um, suggestion that we need these people so that we can talk about. I, I mean, I think we talk. Those of us who talk about these things talk about them anyway. I don't think that we need a monarchy, and it also brings out another question, which I don't know, you 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 haven't studied the monarchy per se, so I don't know if it's something you would want to talk about, but just to make the point that, you know, 80,000 people lining up to um, take a look at the Queen and, and standing in line for eight hours or whatever, and I'm like... These people are so incredibly wealthy. And in the context of our conversation, much of this wealth came from colonialism. But let's forget that for a minute. They mm-hmm. have, like, the the queen had f- at least four uh, palaces that I know of. Everybody hates uh, Jeff Bezos. Everybody hates um, uh, Elon Musk. Everybody hates, uh, what's his name, Um, from Apple. You know, we hate rich people because it's obscene that they have so much money, but everybody loves the queen? I mean, what? And mm-hmm. and she costs money to the British people, right? They support these incredibly rich people with taxes. So I, I just don't understand the psychology that I don't know if you do. We have <laughs> just six mi- five and a half minutes, so it's up to you to decide what of all these questions you want to talk about. Well, I mean, so many things. I mean, first of all, I, again, who is the we yeah. that is supporting and, <laughs> right. and loving this queen? Um, so... I think that's that's one question. Uh, the other the other issue is, you know, the question of do we need a queen in order to critique? Do we need the monarchy in order to critique the colonial past? I mean, I don't think so, right? We're slavery is abolished, and we still talk and teach about slavery. So I don't think you need an institute. You don't you don't need an institution to be around in order to critique it. And the other reason we still talk about the history of slavery is because, again, slavery is not past, isn't dead, it isn't even past, right? Histories of slavery inform the present, much as histories of empire inform the present, even though technically speaking, the empire is over. 
Now, the other point about everybody is, you know, I, I know you had sent me something about this SD, which is the, um, you know, to the point that, well, now that she's dead, we can all be critical. There's been backlash against those public intellectuals who have dared and talk about Jeff Bezos. He's directly implicated in this yes, example. Yes, yes. The, the case of the of, of, of Dr. Ujuanya at Carnegie Mellon, who tweeted something about, you know, may the death of the queen be excruciating. Jeff Bezos retweeted Jeff Bezos, who I, I don't follow him on Twitter, but I understand he doesn't tweet much. And then she's publicly censured by her university. university. So it's not as though, you know, even it's not as though, you know, on the one hand, the admiration for the queen is not just in Britain with these people lining up. It's a global admiration in some circles. And there is, you know, those who have dared to speak out and dared to refuse to mourn have faced a fair amount of public censure. Yeah, and that's why it is so important that um, we do shows like that, which um, you don't you don't get in in many other places. And I I think it's important to mention that because we have our pledge drive coming the next two weeks, and uh, yeah, just reminding people how um, they really get to hear here on this station things that are not available elsewhere. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. You have uh, about a minute and a half to conclude, and then I'll tell people what to expect to hear during the pledge drive. What do you want to say as your um, final words here? Oh wow! Um, <laughs> I think I think what I want to say is that what I am hopeful at this present moment is not that the American public or a bit broader global public get too tied up in the question of was the queen herself responsible? Was she a good queen or a bad queen? What did she know? Should we abolish the monarchy? I'm hopeful that that we can take this opportunity to reckon with some of these hidden truths, to reckon with histories that we perhaps have been hesitant to or reluctant to or not able to, given the, the, this issue of state secrets, to face. I'm hopeful that this moment encourages people to look more closely and carefully at histories of the British Empire from below, told from the perspectives of colonized people, not from this whitewashed, top-down perspective. Yeah, which is what we do here again. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Kolsky, Associate Professor of History at Villanova University, author of Colonial Justice in British India, White Violence and the Rule of Law. I suggest that you um, Google her and um, read her articles, and she also links to a lot of other um, worthy um, pieces um, I want to tell you quickly before we let Elizabeth go uh, what to expect in the next two weeks. We actually have these shows um, ready for you um, in the first one next week. We'll be talking with David Korn of Mother Jones about his new book, American Psychosis. I don't have the full um, um title but um i can assure you it will be very interesting and the next week after that richard wolf um a semi-regular here on the show uh will be us will be with us to talk about something that is very intriguing i think he sees a relationship between the war in ukraine and the ascension of china and how much that scares uh, the American government. So, Elizabeth, again, thank you so much. Thank you and so much. Thank you, Richelle, for um, again being also the engineer and not just the producer. Richelle is leaving us soon. Oh, no. That is so sad. I'm SDD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. Afternoon edition, commandeering air.